As always, we appreciate Nell very much. Uh, my Bible's open to Romans chapter 8. If you have a prayer slip or visitor slip, we'd love to get them. Kenny or Will will take them from you. If you'll pass them to the aisle. And uh, we will pray for you this week coming. This morning I want to talk to you about life in the Spirit empowered for change and victory. Uh, let's just take a step back for a minute and just look at the big picture. What's God doing in this world? Um, where is history going? Where are you going as a part of history? And does it really matter how you live or for whom you live? I believe most people live as agnostics with, as agnostics with regard to those questions. They simply don't know, uh, so they pursue what they think is best, or they go whole hog after what they desire, and they give their lives to those things without any thought, really, of the grand overarching purpose in life. Most would not deny God outright, but they see no real coherence, no meta-narrative, as some would call it, uh, no big picture. I'm thankful for Erwin Lutzer, um, who offers this helpful insight. Let's suppose that you were given a puzzle with 100,000 pieces. 3,000 is more than I can bear, but 100,000 pieces, but there was no picture on the box, and you dump it in the backyard, and you spread it out with a rake, you'd probably need that, and so you didn't even know where to begin to put it all together to make sense of the total picture, and maybe you found a section of connecting pieces and put them together, but it was really kind of aimless, and you maybe have a small cluster of what was a massive puzzle. Can you imagine living your life that way? You have this piece and that piece, but no coherence, nothing that puts it all together because you don't know the picture on the box. So you're just looking for things to connect with no real end game. In the Bible, we have the picture on the box. From Genesis to Revelation, we have God's big story, the grand story of his redemption. Ultimately, everything comes down to the glory of God. God created the universe for us to behold his glory, ultimately so in his very presence. And we read God's stated purpose for everything on the pages of Scripture, which informs how we really view the world and how we're to live our lives for the glory of God. I'm amazed at the usage of that word glory. Maybe you haven't thought about this for your life. Am I living for the glory of God? Am I, is my life set in a trajectory day in and day out that I want to honor God with my life, with the years that I have? I'm reminded of the only psalm credited to Moses where he says, teach us to number our days, O Lord, that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, so don't boast about it, but rather... Set your heart to live purposely for God's glory. So the usage of this word glory, uh, just in looking at Strong's Greek dictionary, it refer, God's glory refers to his unchanging essence. It's a multifaceted definition, but his unchanging essence, giving glory to God is ascribing to him his full due. So... 
when I seek to glorify God, I seek to honor Him and render praise to Him because He is worthy of it. When I speak of the glory of God, it also references His splendor, His brightness, a reflection of His dignity and holiness, His moral attributes, His excellence, His perfection. In Hebrews 1.17, it refers to Him as the Father of glory, His infinite perfection. Glory also refers to heaven. Heaven is referred to glory, which is the dwelling place of God and will be the dwelling place of the redeemed who are glorified. The glory which God will bestow. But just think with me for a moment of how this word glory is used in the Bible and then we'll make a connection here with regard to our lives. Uh, As God was going to bring manna in the morning, he said to Israel in the wilderness, in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. What? Him fulfilling his promises, the excellence of his person, how he nurtures and cares for us. In Exodus 33, 18, Moses asked, Lord, show me your what? Your glory. That's a great request. The Hebrew word for glory is kabod, which means heaviness. And what Moses was asking was a very serious request. Lord, I want to see the weight of who you are. And what did God say to that request? As wonderful as Moses communed with God. I remember he went into the tent of meeting and he would come out and he would have the glow of glory on his face because he communed with God. He was a man who fasted 40 days and 40 nights. He was a man who was willing to give his life in order that Israel would be spared for their rebellion and disobedience. He says, Lord, let me see your glory. But God says, no one can see my glory and live in this world. I'm reminded of Paul's statement of 1 Corinthians 15. The kingdom of God, flesh and blood will not inherit it. And so God placed Moses in the cleft of the rock and passed by Moses so that he, Moses got a glimpse of his glory as we do in Christ. In Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens declare what? The glory of God in the firmament shows his handiwork. But the greatest endorsement of God's glory is spoken of in John's prologue in John 1, 14 where it says, we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, Jesus Christ. You want to know what God is, what, what to look to? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Give your life to knowing Christ, and you will know God's will and God's favor and the truth. But practically for us this morning, um, I, I think of 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for what? The glory of God. So when I think of this theme of the glory of God, I'm reminded of these wonderful statements and we were saved for the glory of God. We are to live our lives for the glory of God. Uh, And I don't want that to get lost on us as we are plowing through the book of Romans chapter 8 in particular and we're looking at these 
incredible doctrines and we're, we're seeing how the Spirit of God has been given to every believer that we would get lost from why we're to live our lives for the glory of God and that is for His praise. So I want to look at several things this morning. Paul introduces really what is the theme of Romans 8 and the book of Romans at large when he speaks about the Spirit's empowerment, life in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that has been given to the believer. And what I want to see uh, this morning is not only does he mention the, the, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, 17 times in chapter, 18, in chapter 8, but it, it's, it speaks of the Spirit's work in your life and in mine to bring about change. Not change because you're bored with what you, you're presently living, although He does give us life and life to the full. Um, not change because you just want to change your preferences. You're tired of this color and you want another color. You're tired of ordering, ordering number one on the menu and you want to venture out and get number eight. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about change with a purpose, change to be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. The reason you and I are to live for the glory of God is because that is God's plan for the ages for his people, that we would look like Jesus, that we would resemble our Savior on our way to seeing him face to face. So I want to talk about change. I want to talk about being freed from guilt and the slavery uh, and bondage of death. I want to talk about um, being freed for a righteous and victorious life. And so we come back to verses 1 through 4. And I was just thinking this week and preparing to preach. And I love this moment in my life, in my given week. It really is the lion's share of why I live is to come and preach God's word to you. Amen. And I, I was thinking, um, when all is said and done, what, what do I want you to leave with? And I was thinking of maybe those who are younger in this body. Doug said, he and Sherry have been here 17 years. I can't believe it, Doug. I would want you to leave with this thought. My pastor preached that the Bible could be trusted. And it was the anchor of our church and should be the anchor of our lives because it points us to the God who reigns and the, and the God who saves. That our pastor taught us that God was holy and there was a coming judgment because of sin and that I would have to give an account of my life before the God who created me for my sin and that left to myself, I have no hope. So the depth and the weight of my sin and my need for a Savior, Jesus Christ, the only Savior there is. But, but our, our pastor also emphasized the, the beautiful covering of God's grace extended to those who repented of their sins and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, I remember one year he took about four or five Sundays on that one theme that there's no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation for those in, who are in Jesus Christ. And so through these nudges and through this guidance, I was pointed to Christ. And I've never been the same since. And He's been with me every step of the way. And He has guided my life. And one day I will see Him. 
So that's my prayer for our times together, that we would have such a, a relationship with Christ, that we would have a church body that communicates that love to Him by the way we live together. So I want to kind of present my thoughts in three ways this morning. First would be God's grace is always leading us to change. Not excuses, not explain aways. God's grace found in Jesus Christ is always leading us to change. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that really is uh, coming after the, the cry of every believer in chapter 7, verse 24. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And the answer is, praise be to God for our Lord Jesus Christ. So the lifting of condemnation comes only by the grace of God found in Jesus Christ. Now, notice this theme in chapter 8. Look at verse 34. 34 of Romans 8. Who is to condemn? So this theme of condemnation uh, is, is uppermost in Paul's mind. Who shall lift this spirit of condemnation, whether it comes from uh, the righteous judgment of God or it comes from our own guilt or it comes from Satan who is called the accuser of the brethren who loves to bring up our failures and throw them into our face and remind us how we fall short over and over and over again. So Paul is thinking about this condemnation. What can separate us, he goes on to say, from this the love of God, and the, it's absolutely nothing. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the, is the one who died. And because he died more than that, he was raised. Who's at the right hand of God, who's interceding for us. Can you think of anything more comforting than that? The Spirit of God intercedes for us, and the Son of God intercedes for us, that you would ever make it home. Most definitely, we will be in his presence so notice verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So this verse assumes change. Through the work of the Holy Spirit in you, believer, we come to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Amen. And that through his work we are born again. And brought into God's family through adoption. All things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. And we begin a spiritual journey that will last our entire life until that day we enter into His presence. So this law, He's holding up the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus and the law of sin and death. I was helped by the life application commentary that reads, Paul does not say these powers are equal. This is not yin-yang. This isn't a tug-of-war. Uh, the Spirit of God is operative and sovereign. Nevertheless, we have a menacing struggle with a sin nature. So Paul does not say these powers are equal, but he knows they, they're both there. We must realize the same. One power must be resisted while relying on the other. So when temptation comes, Lord, give me the resources. Give me the presence of mind. Give me the power to say no to temptation in my life. 
When we fail to rely on Christ's strength for our daily strength, we in essence provide sin with more power over us. Sin's power will not have grown, but our relative weakness will make it seem that way. Sin's power is not an excuse for us to drift spiritually or openly give in to temptation. Believers must not forget that they have already won because the spirit within us is greater than the spirit of this world. I was reminded of that this week when, when I was a new believer and I had a summer job in my college years uh, with the um, utility company and would stop at a place and get some breakfast and the uh, owner of the little you know, breakfast shop had a poster, seven days without prayer makes one week, W-E-A-K. I was thinking, isn't that the truth in simple terms? I neglect the means of grace that God has given. I check out on worship. I'm nominal in my church involvement. I'm not having Christian input or intake from His Word. What, what... Would I, why would I ever think that I would be able to stand against the temptations of that day? We need the Lord's power within us. And it is in the Holy Spirit. Notice something along this line. Our justification, which we've spent a lot of time on, our justification must never be separated from our sanctification. What do I mean by that? Well, in chapter 5, verse 1, it says... Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So one cannot say, well, I'm justified by faith. I'm declared legally righteous in the courtroom of God, but I'm really not into sanctification. I want to be declared innocent, but I'm going to live for myself. That is not salvation. There's no biblical support for that thinking. We are declared righteous by faith in Jesus Christ. It's a legal declaration. But we begin an ongoing process, an ongoing journey in our life to be conformed into the image of Christ. Faithful commentator William Henriksen writes, justification and sanctification always go together. The fact that the the expression no condemnation implies both pardon and purification is clear in this verse. In Romans 5, I mentioned verse 1. We see the process of sanctification through our sufferings. And from suffering, we learn what? Endurance. And through endurance, what do we learn? Character is forged in our life. And what comes from character? Hope. The hope of God. As we present ourselves to Him. The believer in Jesus Christ has experienced justification, is in the process of experiencing sanctification. Justification is a one-time event when you believe. Sanctification is how long? Two weeks from next Thursday? No, no, it goes the, the entire distance of your life. You are His. I am, I am his and he is mine and I will continue to walk by faith in him. Paul Tripp writes, God's acceptance of us through Christ is not a call to relax, but a call to work. Now, this seems so contradictory. Which is it? 
Well, we're not talking about earning salvation. We're talking about living the Christian life. Look with me at this important cross-reference. Keep your finger in Romans 8. We're coming back. And turn with me to the book of Titus. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus chapter 2. And here's an expression of what it means to live the Christian life. Titus 2, beginning of verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared. How? Well, in Christ. He's come. Um, it's a trustworthy statement, worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Red and yellow, black and white, na this nation and that nation. This is a, a universal redemption by faith in Him alone. Exclusive claims offered to the world. Verse 12, training us as a believer, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. That's work, wouldn't you say? That brings to the forefront decisions on a daily basis. I can't listen to that. I can't go there. I can't watch that. I can't participate in that kind of conversation. I, I, I can't do that. So, working through the Christian life is renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions. As we examine these things in Scripture... As we look at the law of God, which we can't keep in our own power, but as we're looking at the decisions of life, we're renouncing ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. That is a picture of sanctification. God's grace, His amazing salvation, is only the beginning of a lifelong journey with Him. In short, our justification must never be separated from our sanctification. So God's grace is always leading us to change. Let me just kind of break that down a, a bit further. What kind of change? What are you talking about? If it's not preferential, if it's not superficial, what kind of change are you talking about? I was encouraged by a new believer in this congregation. You'll get to know him soon. But I've been meeting with him for the last six months and yeah, he had already, through his own personal study, had been studying online, sound teachers, and we've begun this wonderful friendship, and we've been meeting and working through a number of Bible studies together. And he called me this week, and he said, I just wanted to share with you how encouraged I am um, in my walk with the Lord. And he, he shared with me how his co-workers have noticed the difference in his life, and he wanted to call and share that with me. I thought, man, that's fantastic. You know, they, they're seeing a change in your life. What, and he, he went on to say, yeah, they, they, they've noticed that in me and they've asked if I could begin the day in, in the control room at the plant with a Bible verse. Amen. That kind of change. The religious leaders in Acts 4.13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. That kind of change. And what's the purpose of this change? All right, let's go back to the puzzle and the picture on the box. 
In Ephesians 1.4, it says that God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That in eternity past, if you can get this into your mind, God made decisions, decided to create, and decided to redeem a people for his glory. And he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And then Ephesians 1.4 goes on to say that we should be holy and blameless before him. In this very 8th chapter of Romans, it says in verse 29, this golden chain of salvation that I've brought to your attention before, that for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of what? His Son. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he will also glorify. So what is the purpose of this change? The purpose of this change is for you and I to be conformed into his image on our way to ultimate glorification in his presence forever and ever. I was reminded of the Charles Wesley hymn, Finish now thy new creation. Finish then thy new creation. True and spotless let us be. Let us see thy great salvation perfectly restored in thee. Changed from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Amen. Notice with me, secondly, the Spirit's empowerment. I mentioned this was a major theme in Romans 8. Spirit empowerment, the Holy Spirit dwelling within you to give you power and freedom from sins, guilt, and slavery. Why do you keep emphasizing that? <laughs> because it's a clear and present danger, wouldn't you agree? It robs joy. It brings untold discouragement. And we need to be reminded that in Christ, the, we have freedom from guilt and slavery, the slavery of sin. I mentioned in a previous study that a sure sign that you and I are under the law even if we don't know what the Ten Commandments are. This is a human problem of being under, under the law, whether it's the natural law or the written Word of God in the Ten Commandments. A, a sure sign that we're under the law is that we're proud of our achievements. We want people to know. We want to remind ourselves, hey, I'm up to the mark compared to her or him. We become critical of others when we're under the law. We're slow to admit our failures. Have you noticed this human trait? Deny, deny, deny. Deny. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. How often you've seen this played out in some drama? I didn't do that, I didn't do that. And the lies go on, only to find out later what? Yeah, you did. As a matter of fact, you did. We're slow to admit our, fa our failures. We feel undone and don't want anyone to know it. We hide in the bushes with Adam and Eve. And fourthly, we frequently deal with discouragement and defeat. To be under the law, under the bondage of the law, because of our inability to keep it. Now I want to hold up for us again the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus and the law of sin and death in verse 2. 
John Phillips, in his commentary, asks us, picture a coin falling toward the ground under the, influ- under the influence of the law of gravity. In itself, that coin is powerless to overcome the downward pull of this earth. In it, or it is in its very nature to fall. But before it has gone far, someone reaches out an arm, holds the coin firmly in his hand, and then lifts it higher and higher in defiance of the law of gravity. Phillips continues, the law of the spirit of life in that person's arm overcomes the law of gravity. This does not mean that the original law has ceased to operate, but it does mean that a higher law has come into force. We sin by nature because we're victims of the fall and because it is the nature of fallen men to sin. But in Christ Jesus, a higher law operates. Friends, I'm wanting you to embrace this by faith. Greater is he that's in you, the power of God to overcome the things that plague you that you might know true change. And what, what you and I will battle against is we want instantaneous things. We want instantaneous sanctification. But it doesn't work that way. God's way to grow you and me in Christ is is a process. And one of the ways for that to happen is for you, you to attach yourself to a local body where you can receive the word of God and grow in that relationship and build your life around your relationship in Christ in a local church. And we're finding just a very strange wind um, in, in our culture that resists that, 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 that goes the individual route. Jesus and me on a train, that's all I need. I don't need to be attached to a body. I don't need to come under the word. I, I can do it all by myself. Notice verse 3, for God has done what the law, God has done. That could be the banner of our salvation. God has done this. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Freedom over sin never can be obtained by rule keeping or law obeying because we're unable to do it. Weakened by the flesh. The law is good and holy, but, but we're not able to to pull it off. It, in fact, it tempts us to greater sin. We see the line there. We want to step over it. For God has done sending his own son, Jesus Christ, in the likeness of sinful flesh. That he was a human being tempted in every way like we are, yet without, without sin. And that his substitutionary atonement on the cross paid it all. The guilt and bondage has been lifted because of what he has done for those who will receive this gift of grace. You still trying to do it your way? You still trying to keep, keep the rules? You know that can't be done. That's precisely why Christ has come. Would you look to him and be set free from the bondage of sin? I always remember Charles Spurgeon's conversion. I mention it periodically. And it happened on a snowy day when he was a teenager. Inclement weather made his way into a, a, little, a little country church and the pastor wasn't there because of the weather and a deacon was charged with giving the morning message in short order and so he went to Isaiah 45, 22, which says, look to me 
and be saved, all you ends of the earth. Spurgeon said, I saw at once the way of salvation, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up and the people only looked and were healed, so it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away and that moment I saw the sun. I say the same to you this morning. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe on him and be set free. Notice with me thirdly, spirit empowerment, the spirit of God living within you, believer, for righteous and victorious living. Through the Holy Spirit's power within the believer, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled. Isn't that interesting? The law could not be kept in the flesh, and yet with the Spirit of God within us, what happens is we begin to develop a desire to live a life that pleases God. And where we once resented His commands and we were trying to circumnavigate the globe to try to keep from obeying them, the Spirit of God in redemption dwells within us, and we hear those things and we no longer loathe them. They're not a burden or a hassle to us, but life-giving. And we begin to say, Lord, I want to live a life that's pleasing to you. Do you see the difference in motivation? If you view the commands of God in, in obedience to Christ coming under his lordship as a hassle, are you likely to want to pursue obedient Christian living? I don't think so. I think a changed heart communicates a delight like Psalm 119 where the psalmist said, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. R.C. Sproul wrote, Christ did not only come to set us free from the penalty of sin, he also came to set us free from the power of sin. With the Holy Spirit residing in us, we may fulfill righteousness by the way we live. The law is not simply set aside, as antinomians would have us believe, but in the cross, we have been set free for righteousness. And to know the Lord is to love the Lord, and to know the Lord is to love what the Lord loves, and to hate what the Lord hates. I want to just ask, as we think about living the Christian life, is that something you even want to do? That's going to affect how you do everything. Am I, whether I eat or whether I drink or whatever I do, am I doing it for the glory of God? And that becomes your pure and holy passion, rightly understood. And then it becomes a joy as you think about serving the Lord with gladness. It comes from a heart that's been transformed, not a sense of duty, and there's duty in the Christian life, but it's not ultimately out of a sense of duty where I just want to get him off my back. So I'll throw something in the offering plate and I'll make a show on Sunday morning and then maybe he might just get off my back so I can live the way I want to. That is not the way a believer thinks at all. When we come to know him, what's the greatest commandment? It's to love him. 
So think with me about how that works out in your life and in mine. I don't do that because he's got a call on my life. I give because he's got a call on my life. And I love to honor him because God loves a cheerful giver. I want to be empowered for righteous, victorious living. And that comes through the Spirit of God as I yield to him and walk, not according to my flesh, but according to the Spirit, verse 4 says. An obedient life, a desire to live for him, living for the smile of God's approval. Maybe so. When I'm trashed at work for my witness, I'm, I'm focused on him. When I'm mocked by family for my allegiance to Christ, I'm focused on him. When I'm overlooked because of my commitment to pursue integrity in all things, his glory is what I'm seeking. When I'm tempted to look in, in forbidden pastures, I remember I, I can find life and peace in no other for truly he is the good shepherd and I shall not want he makes me to lie down in green pastures he leads me beside the still waters he restores my soul the only truly transforming power that has ever come into the world is that of the person and teaching of Jesus Christ look to him call upon him now Receive him into your life. By God's grace, be saved in him. Paul Tripp, I'll close with this. God's agenda is for the church to be an incarnational community on earth, meaning where Christ is being formed in us and we're revealing that grace to others so that our presence would reveal his grace and truth-laden glory. May it be so. Let's, cl let's, let's close in prayer as we... Prepare to enter into this time of decision. Would you bow with me? The gospel in simple terms is that God has sent his son, Jesus Christ, and that the way to forgiveness, the way to reconciliation with God, the way to have peace with God is by faith in him alone. Jesus experienced all the things that we did in this world coming once for all to die for our sins. If you would turn from your sins this morning, if you would call out to him right now, Lord, I see that I'm a sinner, I cannot save myself, and I know that that is why you died and that you paid for my sins. I, I receive that payment, Lord, based upon the promises of your word coming come into my heart. Not only did you die, Lord, I, I, I hear that you, you rose from the dead, and I believe that. I believe you rose from the dead. Come into my heart now and redeem me. Save me. Maybe the Lord has shown the light of his word on your heart to where things have become a bit stale. And instead of joyful service, it's been a burden. I don't think the fault can be laid with the Lord, with the Spirit of God within you. I think this really is a call for us to repent of anything that falls short of joyful obedience to Him. 
And maybe this morning we would repent of that and ask God to do a work in us and in his church. Lord, lead us now in these closing moments. We pray this for the glory of your name. Amen. Let's stand together as we sing.